right. We are in the book of Luke, chapter 15, at the end of this chapter, the uh, third of the, of the three parables that Jesus gives in this chapter. And uh, like I said last week, it's kind of like Blue's Clues. It's like repeating the same lesson uh, each sermon. Um, and that's why Jesus is doing it. He's wanting to uh, teach and instruct and, to be honest, call out and rebuke the Pharisees uh, with these three parables. And so we're going to look at this last parable. Why the most famous of the parables that he gives, especially amongst these three, uh, the parable, as many know it as, as the parable of the prodigal son, as I will say, that may be kind of a misleading title because the parable is about two brothers, two sons, not just one son. And so let me, uh, let me read that, um, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. I'm reading from the ESV Bible. That's the same translation you'll see on the screen. So if you have a different translation, it's, o- it's okay. As long as you have God's word, that's good. But if you read along, you're like, whoa, mine doesn't have that word. Be okay. It's, it's, that's what we're using. Uh, Luke chapter 15, uh, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Not one son, two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the, to his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came, he drew near to the house and he heard music and dancing But he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours 
came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was a lost and is found. Let's pray. To Lord, we thank you so much for this parable. We praise you, Lord, that this is in your word. This story, this parable is so known by many. I mean, Rembrandt painted this and it's known in, in, in major part of the Bible that people who aren't even believers know. Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand why this is in your word, why Jesus taught this parable. Lord, we pray for our country. Lord, we pray, Lord, during this time of chaos and mayhem. Lord, we pray, Lord, for a, a heart of repentance. For many people that were in that crowd on Wednesday claimed to be Christians, carrying flags with Jesus' face on it. Lord, help us to not be idol worshipers who worship our government, who worship our leaders. Lord, help us to be worshipers of Christ. Help us as a church to preach the gospel, to preach faith in Christ alone, to hold fast to Christ alone above all else. Help us to do that with patience. Help us to do that with love. Lord, I pray that you help us do that with resolve. Lord, we pray for those who are not with us because they are sick and, and dealing with COVID or fevers or other issues, Lord, we pray that you would watch over them and, and build them up. I pray for those who are online watching us, Lord, watching the service and participating online. I pray for them as well. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for the churches of this city. I pray, Lord, that we would come together to seek and save the lost. We love you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I will warn you, uh, I am going to mention what happened on Wednesday at the end here. Uh, I think it's helpful to, to put that in the context of what Jesus is talking about here as well. Um, and so, but this is, I'll say this with a, with a this is not going to be some kind of like sermon all about Wednesday, okay? I just want to say that on the front end that I am going to mention it. Um, so I want to start off with this. The, the, the title of the sermon is The Brother, The Brother. And uh, kind of the main idea is that Christ, our true elder brother, pursued and died for lost sinners to bring us home to our Father who embraces us as sons. Christ, our true elder brother, pursued and died for lost sinners to bring us home to our Father who embraces us as sons. There's a story about, and during the Vietnam War, that a U.S. soldier was missing in action during the war. He was lost in the jungle of Vietnam. I'm not sure how he got lost, but he got lost. He was a part of his company, and during a battle, he got separated from his fellow soldiers. And so the older son, who was back in the United States, decided to fly to Vietnam during the war to search for his brother. And so he's searching the jungles of Vietnam, the dense and dark jungles infested with, with all kinds of different uh, things, but also soldiers of the, of the Viet Cong looking to kill Americans, especially. 
He risks his life. He flies to Vietnam. He goes searching in the jungle and the battlefield for his lost brother. Now, I'm not sure if he ever found his brother, if his brother was lost. But his, his older brother decided that it was worth the cost, it was worth the risk to fly to an unknown land and go into a battle-torn nation and go into the jungles to try to find his younger brother. And I tell that story because I really want to focus on that idea that I think gets lost in this parable. Especially if you understand that Jesus tells these three parables. He doesn't tell just one in a separate occasion. He tells these three particular parables to the Pharisees and the scribes. Pastor Denton preached about the shepherd, the lost sheep. And then I preached last week on the lost coin. And now this is the story of the lost brother. He has a better title that goes along with the other two parables. The lost brother, or maybe the lost sons, plural. Kind of this, the, the, the one point that I really want to get to is this, the sin of reckless living and the sin of moralism both lead to lostness. The sin of reckless living and the sin of moralism both lead to lostness. And the gospel in Christ is our only hope. The gospel, the gospel of Christ is our only hope. So, again, like I think this parable is sometimes not taught with the wrong focus. Is that it's not about the reckless brother, the younger brother. It's about these two sons in the relationship to a common father. So before we get into verses 11 through 32, I think we need to go back to verse 1 through 3. Because it really is the context and the environment by which this parable sits in. And again, again, we've talked about this. This is the third time we have addressed these three verses. That these tax collectors and these collection of sinners, they would gather around to listen to Jesus' teaching. And I think, I think the, the, Luke is trying to tell us this is not the first occasion where these particular groups of people have followed Jesus and listened to him talk. They have gathered around him before. And these individuals, these tax collectors and sinners, we don't have to go in too much study and depth to kind of describe their living, uh, their living style or their, their understanding of of how they should conduct their lives. I mean, they, these people, the reason why they're described as tax collectors and sinners is because they live wildly. They rejected the way of living that was traditional and respectable. They didn't live by the law or what was expected by their families. I'm pretty sure they didn't go to synagogue on Saturday. And I think that was one of the reasons why the Pharisees and the, the teachers were so upset with Jesus and grumbling about him spending time with these individuals. He's like, these people won't go to the temple. These people don't go to the synagogue. These people don't read the law. Why are you spending time with them? They're reckless. They're wild. They've been outcast by their families. They're not proper Jews. Not like something like their fathers and mothers are probably bragging about them to their neighbors. They chose shameful living. The Pharisees and the scribes, they studied and obeyed the scriptures. They were traditional. They did, they did what was respectable, upright, and moral. 
but it was the tax collectors and the sinners who gathered around the teachings of Christ. They had a habit of drawing near to Christ, and this caused the Pharisees and the religious teachers to grumble, to get upset. Why is he so popular with them? He's a heretic. He can't be saying anything good and proper if he's spending time with these tax collectors. Why are they so eager to spend time with Jesus? They won't go to the temple. They won't go to the synagogue. They won't read their Torah. Why would Jesus want to spend time with them? He has to be speaking blasphemy to them. Or why else would they want to spend time with him? That's why they were so angry with Jesus. That's why they so grumbled at Jesus' decision about who he spent time with. So Jesus addresses these three parables to these Pharisees and scribes. They are the immediate and primary context by whom Jesus is teaching to, is the Pharisees and teachers. Not the wayward sinners, not the prodigal son. That's a misleading title. The exclusive focus is not how the father freely receives his penitent young son. The focus is more on the elder brother's moralistic living. Because that is the primary context by which whom Jesus is speaking to. Both the irreligious and the religious are spiritually lost. That's important to remember. It's not like Jesus is saying that the tax collectors and sinners are somehow immune from repentance, or if they're, they're an exception for repentance, that Jesus, that God just freely gives out his grace without any repentant heart, that would be a wrong interpretation of this passage. They are lost. The prodigal son is lost. The tax collectors and sinners are lost, but so are the Pharisees and scribes. Both are separated from God the Father, both need to be pursued and rescued. Both. So the story begins, the, Pharise- the parable begins, there was a man who had two sons. Which is fascinating because who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to two different groups of people, isn't he? He's talking to tax collectors and sinners, and he's talking to Pharisees and scribes. Jesus was, a, was a, an amazing teacher. So the first The second point is this, the sin of reckless living. The sin of reckless living. Verses 11 through 24. Now the younger one of them, the younger son, comes to his father and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Give me your things that are supposed to come to me when you die. So basically, the, the son's saying, hey, wouldn't it be nice if you just died right now so I could have my stuff? But since you're probably not going to die right now, you look like you're in pr- pretty good health, can you just go ahead and just give me my third of my inheritance? The youngest of the two would get the third, or the oldest would get two-thirds of an inheritance. Let me put it in a different way. Let me put it in my language a little bit here. Hey, give me what is due to me so that I will never have to see you again. You are dead to me. I never want to see you again. Give me what is earned, what I am owed from you so that I can go and live my life freely away from you. I don't know about you, you fathers or mothers in here. What, if your kid came up and said that to you, wouldn't you backslap them across the face? Really? I mean, honestly. We, we go, well, and that's, in that first century Middle Eastern context, how dare they speak to a father? I don't think in a 21st century context it makes it any better. We call him a little jerk. What are you talking about? Go to your room. Get away from me. And in the Middle Eastern culture, they would say, actually, here's what I'm going to do. You can get out of the house and never come back. And you receive nothing. 
The son wants his wealth, but not the father. The, he wants the blessings of the father, but not the father himself. It's very similar with people today. They want the blessings of God's creation, but they don't want God. They want the riches, they want the wealth, they want the materialism, they want the happiness, they want to be able to have the vacations on the beach, but they don't want God. They want to bask in God's creation, but they don't actually want the God who created the creation. But the, the most interesting aspect of the story is, yes, the young son is a jerk and way beyond the line and deserved to be backslapped. But the father's response is equally odd. It says that the father divided his property between them. He doesn't get in an argument. Doesn't, uh, doesn't backslap him. Instead, he divides his property with him. In the Middle Eastern culture, a Middle Eastern father, uh, a child is supposed to be different, different in respect to his elder. He'd have been thrown out of his house with and with nothing would have been expected. And, I mean, he had been thrown out of his house with nothing, and that would have been expected and justified, actually. That would have been justified. Basically, he should have been judged by his father, but he doesn't get judged by his father. Instead, he separates or divides his property. The word for property is also the, the same word for life. He divides his life with him from him. The one-third of his net worth he divided and gave to his son. And you have to think about this in this culture. Today, we don't own a bunch of land. Very few of us own a bunch of land. We have assets. We have net worth. Uh, we have maybe a house or a car or maybe a, a savings account or a 401k, a retirement fund. Maybe you have some stocks. But none of us own massive amounts of land. This father would have owned massive amounts of land. So the way that he would have to liquidate that, that land, he'd have to sell a third of his land, a third of his property to give the money to his son. That's why he uses the word life here. He divided his life. He divided all of his savings, all of his things that he had built up, all this property that he would have bought. And in the first century, which is mostly agrarian and farming culture, a man who owns a lot of land is a wealthy man, right? Especially for a Jewish man to own a bunch of land and then to sell a third of it so that he can give the cash to his jerk son. It's crazy. He gives him a third of himself, basically. You see the rejected love, this loss of honor. And the, the father in agony, yet continual love for his son, gives him what he demands. Now this younger son, he gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. He took a sack of cash. I'll just say a sack of coins, whatever he had. He, he took his, his cash, he took all that he owned, took all the wealth that he chose over the affection of his father. He chose, he, 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 he accepted all this money, and then he, he goes out in all of his now new freedom. He no longer is required to work under the direction of his father's rule. He's free at last. No longer having to listen to his father, no longer having to do certain things that the father tells him to do. He can go off and live his life, complete freedom from his father's rule. It made me think of the, the funny song from Hamilton, King George III, the, the second song, the What Comes Next, right? Obviously, this father would never have sang this, but you kind of have a similar idea, like, what comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Do you have a clue what happens next? He's gone. Outside the father's 
Graces outside the Father's care, completely gone. And all that he has, he has no plans to return. He goes to a far-off country, so he can't be found by his father's servants. He most likely goes to a Gentile land, away from even any visibles of his father's life, his father's religion, his father's... Whoever, what, what, anything that represented his father, he left behind. So he goes to this far-off country, and he, it says that he squandered his property in reckless living. He wasted it. He scattered this wealth, this, this third of the property that his father uh, had worked for and built up over so much time that he then sold because his son wanted his wealth and wanted to be rid of his father. He then goes to this far-off country, and he wastes all the money, squanders it. Uh, this is funny. Sad, but funny. So some of y'all may be Johnny Depp fans, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movie movies. Do you know that Johnny Depp, uh, as a probably not now since he just got divorced and there's a huge like settlement and all kinds of things, he probably doesn't make as much money as he used to. But and when he was in his, in his heyday, when he was doing those Pirates of the Caribbean movies, making millions of dollars, he made like forty six million dollars in twenty sixteen. He spent no joke two million dollars a month. $2 million a month. He spent $30,000 a month on wine. 30000 I don't know how one person drinks that much wine. $30,000 a month in wine. He, he actually, per month, he spent $300,000 on staff. He had 40 full-time staff working for him. I don't know what they did, but he gave them $300,000 a month for staff. He spent $150,000 a month on security. He spent $200,000 a month on a private jet. Johnny Depp bought a village in France for $75 million. He literally bought a village and then allowed people to live in these houses he bought. He spent $75 million on a village in France. He spent $3.6 million on islands in the Bahamas. He spent $3 million in one particular moment to blast his friend Hunter Thompson ashes from a cannon. This is I'm not making this up. Talk about someone who squandered his wealth. I mean, right now, Johnny Depp's in debt. You know, how can someone that makes that much money be in debt? It's because he squanders it. He wastes it. Even the, the elder brother says later on in the story that his his older bro- his younger brother, uh, he would he would he spent his money on prostitutes. Most likely, just fill in the blank about what what does reckless living look like in the first century? Prostitutes, gambling. He spent everything that he owned, and he was and then in that country that he was in, there was a severe famine, and he began to be in want and need. So he hires himself out to a citizen in the country. He works for a pig farmer. He works feeding the pigs. He's a Jewish man who's now living in the Gentile land, working for a pig farmer. If you don't know anything about your Jewish history or Jewish law, the Jews don't eat pork. Now he is hired out by a Gentile, a pig farmer, to feed the pigs. The most degrading and shameful work is what he was doing. He was so degrading and so shameful that he had to fight with a pig for food because the, the hired, the, hired uh, the owner of the land didn't actually pay him anything. Nothing was given to him. His condition was bankrupt. He looked to his own self-help strategies, which led to emptiness. There was no hope. He longed to be filled by garbage. 
interesting aspect of the story, it says he came to himself. He came to himself. He came to his senses, it says. He remembered his gracious father. He, he recognized that his, his father's servants had more than enough bread. So he constructs a plan. I will rise and go to my father and I will repent that I am a sinner, that I have sinned against you and against God and I'm not worthy to be called your son. Let me pay off my debt. Let me be a hired servant. Let me work to pay off my great debt. So not only did he recognize he needed to go back to his father, not only did he construct a plan, but then what did he do? He actually arose and went. So he didn't stay in the garbage. He didn't stay in the pig pile. He didn't go, well, my father really won't actually accept me back, so I might as well just stay where I am and die. No, no, no. He arose and he came to his father. While he was still a long way off, he was... The father must have been waiting for his return. Why else would he see him from afar? You, you, I kind of had to add some more little details here. Obviously, I'm speculating, but uh, you want to add a little bit of details. And just like you could speak, we don't know how long of a time between when the son left and when he came back. Let's just say it was several years. You could just sense the elder brother and the father eating dinner together and the elder brother just roasting his younger brother. That idiot who left, that jerk who left. How dare he? I bet he's like, I bet he's worthless now. But yet the father, it says here, is waiting for his return. He's hopeful, not losing hope. And the father sees him and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. He has compassion on him. You can see the emotion in the Jesus' story that this father sees his son coming from afar, his long-lost son, and he's full of emotion. He's probably crying. He runs out to his son who probably looks like death. And he embraces him. He runs like a boy, which was undignified for an elder to run like a boy. He ran like a boy. And, the start, the, and then the son starts to give his confession, doesn't he? His prepared confession. He's giving his prepared confession to his Father, hey, your father, I've repented against you and against heaven, and, and I don't worry to be your son. And what does the father do? He cuts him off. He said, stop talking. Look, go get my son the best robe. He's not going to let his son work off his debt. He's going to embrace his son and bring him back. The best robe would have been the father's robe, and he restored the servants would have saw the son wearing the robe, wearing the ring, wearing the shoes, and assumed, okay, he is now back and restored and right standing in the family. Why else would he be wearing these things? And then not only that, the father says, bring the fattened calf. Invite the entire village. We're going to have a celebration because my son is now home. Just showing the extent of God's Love and the grace to spare. And it's absolutely free to the son. He has to do nothing. He doesn't have to pay it back, does he? And there's a celebration of God's mercy and love and grace. The younger son has to do nothing. No penance, no confession, no working off his sins, no hired hands. He has to do nothing. It's completely free. He did nothing to earn this. And instead, the, the, the rightful thing, the, the most just thing to do would be to do what? To turn him away turn him away. 
But that's not what the Father does. The third point is the sin of moralism. Verses 25 through 32. The story ends there. Act 1 now moves to Act 2. The older, the older son, the older brother. The older brother is angry when he hears that his younger son has been brought back and that he has been restored into the family. He's angry. He refuses to go into the celebration. You under, if you read this story and you don't think about how you would react, you're not reading it right. Because honestly, if we were in the same situation, we would have been mad too. Here's why you would be mad. Because what happens now? The younger son had already taken his third inheritance and left. He then comes back. The father restores him back. And what does that mean? He's now a son again. And what does that mean when the father dies? That son receives a third of an inheritance again. So the older brother has now lost a third of his inheritance. That's why he's mad. He's an heir again. But he's already wasted his money. Why would you bring him back? That's why the older brother says, look, he is pissed. He is so angry at his father. He doesn't even call him father. He doesn't even call him a respectable title. He says, look here, you, father of mine. I've slaved for you. I've slaved, I've worked for you, but you've and I've never disobeyed you. I've never disobeyed your command. I have a right to my inheritance. You have no right to bring him back. You have no right. You just wasted a third of my inheritance. That's my money. He had his chance. He squandered it away. You're an idiot to bring him back. How dare you bring him back? You should have talked to me first before you did that. How dare you? Now you understand why he's mad. If you think about money, you think about inheritance, and you think about it, uh, what that meant, the older brother was angry. But both sons were equally lost in sin and open rebellion. The older brother chose mor morality, strict obedience. He didn't care about the father. He realized if I'm obedient to my father until he dies, then I will receive all that is due me. He didn't care about his father. He just cared about the wealth. He just cared about the inheritance. The younger son didn't care about the father either, he just cared about his self-discovery and his freedom. Both were alienated by the father. Both were alienated from the father. They both have self-centered ends, the wealth of the father. They both hated the father. Don't fall in the trap to think that the older brother loved his father. He doesn't love his father. He only cares about the wealth that he is going to get when he dies. Both wanted their fathers to die so they can receive the wealth that was due them. This is what Tim Keller says about sin. Here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violently virt uh, violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most uh, immoral person. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It's putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of his father in his own life. Both are lost. The moral, per perfect one and the wayward, reckless, prodigal one. 
but also we know that both are loved by the father. His father came out to both of them. He ran to the younger one. What does he do with the older one? He goes out to him. He goes out to his older brother and comes out and entreats him. They both have self-salvation projects. One is moral. One is open-minded tolerance. One is like, I'm going to go find my salvation through reckless living and finding myself. The other is like, I'm going to be saved by my perfect obedience to the law. They're both wrong, but they're both loved. The gospel is the best pass of the three because the gospel says it's not about moralism, living. It's not about tolerance and being open-minded and finding happiness in the things of the world. The gospel says, humble are those that come to me and you shall receive forgiveness and you shall be called a son. The proud, on the other hand, are the ones that are judged. The last point is this, the good shepherd and the good elder brother. In the first parable, we saw that the shepherd left the 99,000 and went after the one, and God and Christ Jesus comes and is the great shepherd. John 10 says that he is the good shepherd. But Jesus is also the good elder brother. What's interesting about this third parable is where's the pursuer? The first two parables, we get a pursuer, right? We get the shepherd who pursues the lost sheep. We get the woman who pursues the lost coin. But yet in the third parable, we don't have a pursuer. Where's the pursuer? Who's going after the younger brother? The elder brother should have left to find his brother. The brother should have gone, I'll bring him back. The father says to the older brother here, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. So yes, bringing the younger son back would cost him. The the restitution by the father is not free. That's the wrong way to read the story. You think, oh, the the younger son got off stock free, right? He he went off, squandered all his money, and then he's accepted by his father. Oh, hooray, hooray, hooray. It's just like us, right? Jesus accepts us back. I mean, God accepts us back freely and adopts us back freely, but that's not true. It did cost. It costs a great deal. That's why the older brother is so angry, because he knows there will be a cost, and he's unwilling to pay it. He's unwilling to pay the the, the, the cost for his younger brother. The cost does go to the elder elder brother. Forgiveness comes at a cost to the one granting forgiveness. It's free to the younger brother, but the expense goes to the older brother. The problem with this story is, is the older brother is a Pharisee. That's the problem. Unfortunately to the younger brother, his older brother is a Pharisee. He's a tax collector. I mean, he's he's uh, he's he's a teacher of the law. And we in this story should yearn for a better older brother who's willing to pay the cost for our adoption. Our true elder brother paid our debt on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 through 18 really gets at this idea of how Christ Jesus is our elder brother. Hebrews 2, verse 10, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. 
Verse 14, therefore, they're, 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 since therefore the children of share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partakes of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but, the helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He is our great older brother who goes to the cross to bring us back. He represents our brother coming to rescue us from the garbage and the filth and the, and the, and the nothing and the bankruptcy and the hopelessness. But he doesn't just bring back the reckless living. He brings back the moralistic individuals who think if they just work and work and work and work, they'll earn their salvation from God. He adopts both of them. And we receive the Father's love and his eternal, his eternal love and his acceptance and his adoption. Stop living recklessly hoping to find happiness, seeking joy and freedom and self-discovery. You're lost from home, and your Father loves you. Return to Him in Christ. Stop slaving with works and deeds, hoping to earn God's favor and blessings. All is yours in Christ. Return to God and find comfort and rest in the righteousness of Christ, not in your own. The reason why I wanted to bring up what happened on Wednesday is because there's something that's deep, and the hearts and souls of the people that rushed those doors. Yes, it was mayhem. Yes, it was chaos. But there's something going on deeper there. And there's a sense of lostness. They're lost. They think if President Trump is no longer president, they'll be helpless. They'll be lost. They think if he's not president, there's no hope. They didn't do that just recklessly. There is a reason and a belief that if they could somehow keep that man in office, they will have hope. The world doesn't understand that, but we do. The world thinks that if we just have more materialism and more power, we'll have more happiness and more hope. But that's wrong. There's only hope in Christ. If you don't hold fast to God, you have nothing. If you don't abide in Christ, you have nothing. In, uh, in J.I. Packer's book, The know, Knowing God, he, he says kind of interest, interestingly that adoption is the highest privilege of a Christian, the highest privilege of a Christian. He puts it above justification, not because he doesn't believe in justification, but he says justification is looking at God as, as judge and that we are then declared innocent. But with adoption, God's not just simply a judge. He is father to be loved and cared for by God the Father. Charles Wesley writes, Where shall my wandering soul begin? How should I all to heaven aspire? A slave redeemed from death to sin, a brand plucked from eternal fire. How shall I equal triumph raise or sing my great deliverer's praise? How shall I the goodness tell, Father which throw to me hast showed, that I, a child of wrath and hell, that I should be called a child of God? Should I know, should I feel my sins forgiven, blessed with this Antipas of heaven, that I should be called a child of God? Jesus says in John 17, 13, 
He prays in his high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father that, their, that his joy would be fulfilled in us. That Christ's joy would be filled in us. He shares his joy with us. The whole celebration at the end of this parable is to say, all that the Father has given to the greater son, he gives to the lesser, the younger sons, the one who were reckless in their lives, the, one, the sinners, the lost ones. He gives and shares his joy. He shares the fattened calf. He shares the robe. He shares the ring. He shares the shoes. And we celebrate that we've been found We've been celebra- we celebrate because Christ has died on the cross for us. That our older brother rescued us when we did not deserve rescuing. He restores my soul and leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. So the, the imperative or the, the application here is very simple. Abide in Christ. Abide in him, abide in his love, abide in his teachings, remain in his teachings, remain in his word, remain in him, because outside of him is lostness. Christ, our true elder brother, went to the cross to restore your soul, to lead you back home to the loving Father, to share in his inheritance. May Christ be worshipped, because he went to rescue us. He went to the cross to rescue us. We can call God Father. The Lord's Prayer, right? The Lord's Prayer. The prayer that's said all the time, but very few people actually believe you can call God Father because Jesus came to rescue you. That prayer means nothing if he is not your Father. And you are not a child of God without Christ dying for you. Your path of self-discovery, your path of moral conformity leads you away from the embrace of the loving Father. Only Christ can lead you back. So abide in Christ. Abide in him. If there is sin in your life, repent of that sin. These three parables don't tell us one thing. It tells us that repentance is pretty important. Repent. Ask God for forgiveness in Christ and know that you are forgiven. There's also a command of, or an imperative or an application to submit to Christ, abide in him, trust in him. Because why? Because he is one who finds us, is where we are rescued, is in Christ, abide in him, submit to Christ. And the last thing is to worship, that your life should reflect this truth, it should reflect this gospel, that I am a sinner who has been lost, but in Christ I have been found I am an orphan, but yet Christ has brought me back and my father has adopted me in and calls me a child of God. So we should worship God for his saving grace. He sent his son in the world to save us who were lost and now he calls us children of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this amazing parable. It's a little overwhelming even to teach it and to preach it because there's such importance in this story. There's so much power in the story, Lord. Lord, one thing about this story is that it's, it's inclusive. It's universal. We're all lost. Either you're the reckless one who, who lives and squanders, or you're the one who is moralistic, who thinks their religion is going to save them. That's everyone. And it tells us, Lord, that all are lost, 
but all are loved in Christ. And Lord, we, we pray that as if there's anyone in this room who honestly is lost, they are hoping and the pleasure of the world, that they will receive happiness and joy, and that is a path of lostness. Or they're in the path of moral superiority and self-righteousness, that is a path to lostness, Lord. But I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would look to Christ, that they would abide in Him, therefore abiding in Your love, and recognizing that they are a child of God, that is their identity, Lord. And as a father of God, they ought to live accordingly, to be holy as you are holy, Lord, to look to you as their source of comfort when they are in desperate need to look to their Father. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive the debt to others. And lead us not into temptation, Father, but deliver us from evil. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper together. And uh, the way that we do this is that those who have received the Lord Jesus